I was, I, I was just gonna interject and say nowadays, if nowadays uh, you'd you'd be surprised. Most high schools, you'd you'd be shocked that not going to college was even an option. If for most of these kids, the the idea of if you're not going to college doesn't ever come out of a high school teacher's mouth at this point. I had I had to pick a a a college to shoot for my freshman year of high school. Yeah, but one of the first projects we had to do as freshmen was we had to pick the college we wanted to go to. We had to get their little, you know, the flags. They make those cheap. And we had to put a, yeah, you had to get the college flag and put it on this wall. And then you had to work all four years. Well, that was like your thing. And you took it off the wall at the end. And, and I was like a freshman. I was like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah, that's right. Not right away, but yeah. Alamosa. Yeah, that, that, that definitely, Adam State wasn't the school that I picked. Okay. I don't remember what I picked, well, actually. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of kids didn't get into the schools, but you were just supposed to pick, like, a dream school. You, yeah. yeah. I think I tried to pick a small school, and they said, ah, oh, you should shoot higher, and they made, they made me change it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of school, tonight, we're, I'm kind of bummed we have a couple people missing. Uh, I've been really excited to talk about this one. Uh, for our last one, which is ironic because I don't know very much about this one, and uh, very, very few people do. This is, um, I would argue, it's, it's the most controversial, and it's also the most difficult of all of God's attributes that we talk about, and it's kind of ironic because it's so hard because it's that God is simple. This is what we call the simplicity of God, God's divine simplicity. It's very, very very difficult to understand. We are only just barely scratching the surface of divine simplicity. As a matter of fact, most of the stuff we say tonight won't sound that weird to you because it's not until you start getting really deep into this that you see why it's so hard to understand. But nonetheless, we still will get into some of the hard stuff. But we do confess that God is simple, or as the Belgic Confession of Faith says, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. Uh, and it, uh, one quick thing just to talk about the Belgic Confession, because we don't talk about it much. The, this is a highly, highly simplified version of the history. There are lots of different Reformed camps and different Reformed confessions. But for the most part, the Reformed tradition um, is broken up into three major camps. So from the Reformation, you have some of the leaders directly from the Reformation, guys like Calvin and Beza and Zwingli and Turretin. And, but eventually the Reformed movement sort of broke into regional Reformed camps. And you had the Northern Reformed, or the, 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 what were often referred to as the Belgian Reformers, but it encompassed much more than just Belgium. 
It was basically all of Northern Europe. Uh, it's also sometimes referred to as the Dutch Reformed Movement. And our elder Marvin comes from that tradition. And this is the confession that the Northern Reformed held to, the Belgic Confession. The contrary to that was the English Reformed uh, and the British Reformed, and they are the ones that wrote the Westminster. So there's basically two Reformed confessions, the Belgic and the Westminster, and then from the Westminster broke off the Baptists, which wrote the London Baptists. So there's basically English Reformed, which is broken up into the Baptists and the Westminster, and then there's the Dutch Reformed and they follow the Belgic Confession. And, but all of these confessions are extremely similar, especially the Belgic and the Westminster. They're really essentially the same thing. And the Belgic here tells us that we confess a simple being whom we call God. God is simple. So to understand what we mean by simple, I want to start off with a uh, little test this here is a picture. I was going to get one, a real one, but I forgot, and I was running late already. This is a mousetrap, an old-school mousetrap. Would you call this simple? If somebody asked you, is this simple, would you call, this, would you call that mousetrap simple? No. Who said no? Why did you say no? Why, Polly? Why is it no? Okay. It's hard to set them. It has several simple machines in it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Which would be levers and springs and catches and stuff like that. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that so obviously I'm kind of setting you up. It's a trick question because the point that I'm getting at is when we talk about the word simple in theology. We mean it differently than how we use it in normal language. According to theological standards, this is not a simple object. And it's not simple for the exact reasons for something that Bill just said. There's a key word, but I, I want to explain it. So this here is a mouse trap. What is this? Spring. It's a spring. So you don't call this a mouse trap? Well, that's weird because it's right there. Why, why? So notice uh, the mouse trap, when we talk about a mouse trap, we're referring to a whole unit that has individual parts. And the parts themselves are not mouse traps. Right? This is just one of the parts of a mouse trap, and it is not in and of itself a mouse trap. This doesn't become a mouse trap until it is combined with other parts. So a mouse trap is one thing, but it's not simple because this one thing is composed of different parts. And that is what we mean when we say something is not simple in theology. If something is not simple, it is composite. And if something is composite, then it is made up of parts. And so when we in theology talk about God being simple, Yes, Dimple, what we're not saying is that he's not complex or complicated. That's not what we mean when we say God is not simple. God is very complex, and from our perspective, he is very complicated. When we say he is not, or when we say he is simple, what we mean is that he is not composite. In other words, the key to this is that God does not have parts. 
God has no parts. Um, just some definitions of simplicity from some theologians. Louis Burkhoff says God is free from division into parts and is therefore not composite. He is not composite, which means you can't divide him into different parts. Francis Turgeon said God's essence is free and incapable of all composition. There is no sense in which it's even possible for God to be composed of other things. God cannot be... Uh, so, in other words, like the mousetrap, we can't have a God who the, the whole picture is God, but when you break down the pieces of God, those pieces come together to make God. That's not who God is. He is altogether simple. Uh, and and uh, he, which means he's out without composition. And the two confessions that we use are very explicit in this, more explicit than the Belgic uh, confession. This is what the Westminster says. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being, perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. This comma here is incredibly important. This is, this is potentially the most important comma in the whole confession. If I were to read through this, like if someone was listening to the recording and they just heard me say God is without body parts or passions, what might they hear me saying? He's without body parts, right? Now God is without body parts, but that's already covered in the fact that he doesn't have a body. You can't have body parts if you don't have a body. So God doesn't have a body, so he doesn't have arms, he doesn't have legs, he doesn't have a head. But there's a comma here. It's not saying he's without body parts. It's saying he's without body and he is also without parts of any kind. There is no way to part or parcel God up. God is simple. He's just God. There's no pieces. There's no parts. There's no divisions within his being. The London Baptist says the same thing. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit invisible without body, parts, or passions. So all three of the Reformed confessions have made an important attribute of God here. This is not a, something that we just debate about, but no one ever talks about. Within the Reformed movement, this is an important attribute. It shows up in all the confessions. God is simple, or what does that mean? He is without parts. God does not have parts. That is the definition of simplicity. And here's where it gets important, because... If we were to take a step back, we could say, you know what, Colin, this doesn't make sense to me because didn't we just do a class where we learned about 20 or so parts of God, right? It, didn't we just do a class where if we were to, metaphorically speaking, put God into a microscope, we would be able to find love and we'd be able to find wrath and we'd find holiness and we'd find justice and we'd find... Didn't we just do an entire class of all of the different aspects or all of the different parts of God? And this is why this is so important, because it's easy to think that's who God is when we do a class like this. It's easy to think that, well, what is God? Well, you just take a big metaphoric, metaphysical blender, and you put an infinite amount of love in, and then you put an infinite amount of wrath in, and then you put an infinite amount of personality in, and then you put an infinite amount of justice in, and you blend it, and out comes God on the other end. But when we say that God is without parts... That, that, that is holistic, meaning he's not just without physical parts, he's without spiritual parts. In other words, he's without metaphysical parts. So in the same way that God doesn't have two legs and two arms and a head, he also doesn't have love, and then he also has wrath, and then he also has justice, and then he also has... He doesn't have these things as parts of who he is that make him up. God is not made up of love and justice and wisdom. 
And so it might help just to briefly define what we even mean by the word part. Like what is a part? A part is anything in a subject that is less than the whole. Right? So remember we went back to the mousetrap. There's a spring and the spring is inside the mousetrap, but by itself the spring is not a mousetrap. It's less than the whole. A spring is less than a mousetrap, but it's in a mousetrap. If anything you can separate from something, and it is then by itself not that something, then it's a part. If you were to cut my finger off and hold my finger up, no one would look at that finger and say, that's fully Colin. No, it's not. That's Colin's finger, but it is not Colin itself. So my finger is a part of me because it's less than me. Additionally, parts change subjects through addition or subtraction. If you add something to a subject, it is now by definition different than what it once was. If I take a board, a little plank, and then I put a spring on it, and then I put an anchor on it, and then I put a bar on it, and then it becomes a mousetrap, I've totally changed what the board is by adding to it. Same way with taking away. You bake a cake, but have a, a little syringe and shuck all the sugar out somehow, that cake is not going to be the same thing that it once was. So anything that can change has parts. Anything that does not change cannot have parts. And so here's a cool little phrase to help remember divine simplicity. All that is in God is God. All that is in God is God. Again, God is not like a cake. You've, you've got a cake and it's this singular thing, but we could, we could break up that cake into pieces and those pieces are not cake. Right? You take out the flour, flour is not cake. You take out the sugar, sugar is not cake. So a cake is a cake, but it is made up of non-cake. Non-cake comes together and makes cake. God, if you were to pull pieces out of God, every single piece would be fully God. There's nothing within God that isn't God himself. Just like within a cake, the pieces are not cake, but within God, whatever you find is always going to be God. All that is in God is God. God is not a composition of non-God things. God is not created when you put non-God things together in the right mixture, right? All that is in God is God. So what is divine simplicity? Number one, it is God without parts. Number two, it means that all that is in God is God. There's nothing in God that isn't God himself. Now we're going to get to some of the complicated consequences of this. Uh, but I, I wanted to begin with the proofs. Like, this seems irrelevant to a lot of people. Like, well, okay, seems semantics, potato, potato, what are we talking about here? I want us to see where some of these things are derived from, from Scripture. The first one is we have to cover two attributes tonight. We've hinted at this attribute all throughout the class, but we haven't really dedicated a lot of time to it. But we need to, because this is what we lose if we decide to believe in a God who is not simple. If God is not simple, then what we ultimately, we don't just lose simplicity, we lose a lot of other things. And one of the things we lose is aseity. God is assay. And who remembers what aseity means? Self-sufficient. God is not dependent on anything else for his existence. I've used the example that we are dependent on tons of things. If, if we lose our oxygen, we're dead. If we lose food, we're dead. If we lose water, we're dead. If your, kidney die, if your kidneys fail, you're dead. And I could go on and on and on. There are so many things that you are dependent upon for your existence. 
God is dependent upon nothing. There's nothing that God needs in order to exist. And we get that from, and that's, by the way, what the word asedi means. It just, ase just means of himself. God is of himself. He's, he is totally self-sufficient. Another way to talk about it is he is independent. God has divine independence. He is alone and needs nothing else. He is in need of nothing else. And we get that from a handful of places in Scripture. Romans 11 tells us, hypothetically, Paul asks, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I think I actually missed the first part of the verse, which essentially says the same thing. But Paul goes on to say that God is not in need of anything. And why? Because from him and through him and to him are all things. All things come from God and are for God. There's nothing that precedes God that he came from. God doesn't come from anything. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Everything else comes from him. He's the eternal starting point and everything else is from him. But he comes from nothing. Or a better way to say it is he is from himself or of himself. God is Sufficient. We get this in Acts chapter 17. Paul preaching to the heathens says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And Paul's point is he reasons from God as creator to God as Ase. If God is the creator of everything, then that means he existed before everything, which means he was perfectly fine without anything. God, is, has, God does not need anything. God doesn't need anything. He is self-sufficient. He is independent. Now, you ask the question, okay, so how does that apply to simplicity? How, how do we lose simplicity? Well, let me ask you this. Does a cake need flour? In order for a cake to be a cake, does it need flour? Does it need sugar? Does it need milk? The answer, well, I mean, I, I know there's different kinds of cakes, but generally speaking, yes, yes, and yes. So a cake is not ase. Because if, if, if there's no such thing as flour, then there's no such thing as cake. If there's no such thing as sugar, then there's no such thing as cake. So a cake is in need of these other things to exist in order for it to exist. So, so, so now let's pose it to God. If God was a composition of love and goodness and justice, then what happens if love goes away? Now God goes away. So God is dependent upon love for, its exist, for his existence. But God depends on nothing. So love is not some thing outside of God that runs eternal with God that is a part of God. Otherwise, God would be dependent upon love's existence in order for him to exist. Just like if someone took your heart out, you would die. So that means you are dependent upon that part of you, your heart. If I took love out of God, would he die? And if love is a part of God, then yes, he would. And now God is no longer ase. He is dependent upon his attributes to exist. And God is, cannot be dependent upon his attributes if his attributes are parts of him. So again, God is without parts because he is totally sufficient. We also get this from the fact that God is creator. That's Paul's reasoning here. He, he reasons from creator. If God is the creator, then he has to be simple. And here's why we say that. 
If God has parts, then his existence is bestowed to him. So again, if I put flour and sugar and milk and eggs and I bake it and a cake comes out of it, then that cake has been created by the different parts. The heat, the element, they all created the cake. If God is composed of parts, then ultimately God is a created being. And who created God? Well, not a who, but what? Love, justice, mercy, holiness, these things came together in the perfect mixture in the oven and baked out God. So now God is no longer the eternal creator. His attributes are the eternal creator that made God. And we can't have that. We can't have love being the creator of God. We can't have justice and wisdom and eternity being the creator of God. He's the creator of all things. Everything comes into existence through him. So that means that he is not the creation of his parts put together. The the simple principle is that parts always create the whole. We know this especially because we have to literally in time put parts together. Like the uh, mousetraps don't grow on trees. We have to put them together and that's how we know mousetraps are created. But even if God existed eternally with parts and the parts never in time put him together, he nonetheless is still the outcome of the parts, and that still would make him created in a sense. Because God is not created, he cannot have parts. He cannot have different divisions that put together and make him. Another place we get this from is the Tetragrammaton, the name Yahweh. Uh, When Moses asked God who he is, God self-defines. He defines himself circularly. I am who I am. And this is his highest name. This is the only name of God in Scripture not given to another creature. There are names of God that God takes for himself that are given to other creatures. Like, for example, the second most common name in the Old Testament for God is Elohim. And we'll translate that as the word God. But Elohim is also spoken of as angels. And that's why sometimes in your Bible, when it's talking about angels, it'll talk about lowercase g, gods. The Bible calls angels gods, but it doesn't call them Yahweh's. No one is Yahweh but God. And the word Yahweh is a circular name. I am who I am. And we don't have time to talk about all this, but specifically as it applies to aseity and simplicity, essentially what God is doing here is God is saying, I cannot define myself by referencing these other parts that make me. I'm not the all-loving one. I'm not the eternal one. Because then that would lead you to think that eternalness is the base that gave me definition. But God is saying, love doesn't define me. I define love. Eternal doesn't define me. I define eternal. Existence itself doesn't define me. I define existence. So the only way for God to truly define himself is just to refer to himself. Who is God? He's God. Who is God? He's God. That's who he is. Because he's not made up of parts. He gives definition to all of the things. There's a lot of deep philosophy there we won't get into tonight, but almost all of the theologians before us have derived simplicity on aseity from I am who I am. Uh, We also know this from the Shema, which is uh, the the oldest creed we have in our Bibles. It comes from Deuteronomy 6. This is a creed that was incredibly important to the Jewish people. They had to memorize it and recite it often. Even today, Orthodox Jews are supposed to recite the Shema every single morning they wake up. In the New Testament, Jesus references the Shema often. In the Shema, 
is this, Jeremiah 6, 4. Anyone who does not, does not, oh, forgive me. Whoops, I accidentally put the wrong verse. That's from 1 John. The Shema is, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And I, I, I used to know it in Hebrew. It's called the Shema because it begins with the Hebrew word Shema. It's Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so the oldest creed we have identifies God as one. Now certainly that, uh, that uh, an application of that is that he's the only God. That, that's true, that the Shema is saying that there is only one God. But the language isn't quite like that. It doesn't say, Hero Israel, there is only one God. It doesn't say, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is the only God. It defines him as one. It defines him as a pure unity. So an application of that is that there is no, one, there is no other God because there's only one but more than that, the Shema, when it says that the Lord your God is one, it's saying that he is one thing. He's not 20 attributes put together. God is not 20 things. He's one thing. He's one simple being. I'm sorry, I put the, this was supposed to go with this one. Another proof that we have is that God is love. We've quote, we quoted this before, but twice in 1 John, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So we who have come to know and to believe that love God has for us, God is love. Notice, here's what John is doing. John is identifying God with the attribute. The attribute is not something God possesses. Love is something we have to possess. You have to add love to your nature. Your love can increase or decrease. You need to possess it. You need to take it from outside of you and metaphysically bring it inside of you. You have to possess love. But God does not possess love. He is love. This is what we start to, this is how we start to understand simplicity. God is his attributes. John is telling us love is not a part of God. Love was never added to God. Love is not a piece of God. God and love are synonymous. God is his attributes. He doesn't possess his attributes. He doesn't have his attributes. He is his attributes. God does not have wisdom. He is wisdom. God does not have wrath. He is wrath. God does not have existence. He is existence. God does not possess attributes the way we do. That would make them parts of him. God simply is these things. God is love. He is wrath. He is wisdom. God doesn't possess his attributes. He is his attributes. Now, you might be tracking with me uh, to some degree, but here's, here's, here's the consequence. This is where it gets really weird. And that's why, in the name of full disclosure, because of where this leads, uh, this is the only attribute we've covered which is admittedly not agreed upon universally. So, so far, everything we've covered up to this point uh, the entire Christian church for 2,000 years have, have all accepted. We've said nothing controversial. This has a little bit controversial, but let me qualify that. Uh, it was controversial in the medieval ages. It was a debate, but Thomas Aquinas essentially squalled it. Uh, but the eastern part of the church, they, they agree with most of what we're saying, but they would understand it a little differently. But most of the debate is, is new theologians. It's not ancient, but new. So basically, from the church fathers all the way through the Reformation, 
what I'm saying is universal. The only people who rejected it in the Reformation are, were like heretics, people you don't want to be associated, people who denied the Trinity, people who denied Christianity. It, it wasn't until Christians, it wasn't until very, very recently that Christians, Orthodox Christians who are not heretics, began to question this. So there are a lot of contemporary really popular Christian theologians that deny some of the things that I've talked about tonight. Uh, so it's controversial today. For even a, a theological hero of mine, Charles Hodge, largely disagreed with this. Um, a, a really famous Christian apologist, you've probably heard of William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig does not agree with this. So this is a very disputed attribute contemporary. But throughout the history of the church, this has been orthodox Christianity. And, and you see it in the confessions. Right? The London Baptist, the Westminster, the Belgic, this was, this was uniform across the Reformed tradition. So I want to be very clear, it's a novel controversy. But this is, understandably, this is where people start to get uncomfortable. If we mean that God is his attributes, that God is simple, that means God's attributes are not distinct from him. Again, he doesn't have love, he is love. He doesn't have wrath, he is wrath. But what does that mean? That means his attributes are his essence, he is his attributes. He doesn't have his attributes. He is his attributes. Now, what does that mean? Oh, that they're not super, again, they're not added to him. So that means that all of his attributes are ultimately the same thing. Right? If, if wrath is God and love is God, then what is love equivalent to other than God? Wrath. What's the difference between God's love and God's wrath? The answer is nothing. They're the same thing. What's the difference between God's hatred and God's love? The answer is nothing. What's the difference between God's wisdom and God's eternality? The answer is nothing. They're the same thing. Now you see, this is where it starts to get, <laughs> okay, how does that make sense? And uh, honestly, I don't really know. This is just for me personally, one of the mysteries of Christianity, I'm, I'm comfortable just not understanding. I'm comfortable just believing this by faith. Because to me, the, the, the alternative is really bad. If I say, that doesn't make sense to me, so I'm going to make them parts. I'm going to say, no, God has wisdom. He's not wisdom itself. He has love. He's not love itself. I, I have to break God into parts. And now, like we just talked about, I lose aseity. I lose creator, I lose immutability, I lose Yahweh, I use God as love. I lose too much to not affirm this, so I'm going to affirm it. But admittedly, I don't really understand. Again, we're saying that we, we did a class where we covered 22 of God's attributes. But in reality, how many attributes does God have? One. God has one attribute, and it's called God. He's simple. He doesn't have parts. He, there's just God. And God is love, and God is wrath, and God is existence, and God is wisdom, and God is eternal. And all of those mean the same thing, and they mean God. God is his attributes. He doesn't have attributes. He doesn't possess attributes. He is his attributes. So again, we see, and here's another, that means that even God's decrees are God himself. God's plans are not See, for you, your thoughts and your plans are distinct from you. If, if you planned, if, if you said, tomorrow, I'm going to go to, uh, I'm going I'm to go visit Texas. And then 
at night you had a stroke and your brain was damaged and you forgot about that plan, you could lose that plan. That means that plan is distinct from you. Your plans are parts of you. They're not you yourself. But if God has plans and God is simple, that means his plans are him. God's decrees are written into his nature. <laughs> They're his, his plans to do are as immutable and eternal and as a part of him as his very essence is because his plans are his essence. And you see, you probably think I'm talking in another language right now. That's, that's what I meant. This is a deep, complex, difficult attribute. Um, but again, we would, we, I would argue uh, the alternative is too much to bear. The alternative is too much to bear. But all I want to emphasize again, if, if simplicity is true, then God is his attributes. He doesn't have attributes. He is his attributes. And that makes all of his attributes the same thing. They're all just God. I am who I am. I could say I'm loving and wrathful and merciful and just, but then I would just be repeating myself because <laughs> I am all those things. I, it would just be saying I'm God and I'm God and I'm God and I'm God. I, I'm just God. Let me give, just to try to help picture how this is possible, um, no, like the Trinity, no analogy is going to be perfect, okay? These are not going to be perfect analogies, but I think they will help us to some degree understand how can two things, which the Bible says are different, love and wrath, in which we certainly experience different, love and wrath, how can those two things be the same thing? And I want to give some analogies. But first, Bill, were you about to say something? I don't want to cut you off before I start getting into these. Well, I think that the London Baptist Confession Company because it said they're yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, the, the London Baptist, that's, I was thinking that when I was reading it. I wish the Westminster would have added that in. Because they, before they get to that, they want to remind you. By the way, you're not going to get this, but you need to affirm it nonetheless. He's without parts. <laughs> that's basically what they say, yeah. And, and through the whole study, I've had trouble with, with attributes. Because to me, it's the way we see God. It's not, it's not God himself. His attributes are how we see at a particular time and at a particular Place. Yeah, that's key. Yep, yep. And so, uh, so to me, yeah, makes sense. And and I, I'm glad you said that. That that is basically exactly how I'm going to explain it here and through the analogies. But I also say is this helps make sense of every single attribute we've covered so far. I've mentioned that the attribute is essential to God. Love is essential to God. That's what we've been, simplicity is what we've been talking about in all those. Have you noticed with every single attribute, we've gone out of the way to say this is not something outside of God that he adds to himself. It's not like wisdom is out there and God says, I want to be wise. And he, he pu puts an infinite amount of wisdom into himself. Or there's this love substance out there and God goes, I want to be love. And he puts it into himself. Wisdom and love are outside of us. These are metaphysical realities outside of us but they are not outside of God. So love is not essential to who you are. If, if I had a, a metaphysical uh, syringe and I sucked all the love out of you, you would still exist. You would be different, but you would still exist. Uh, so love is not essential to who you are. Love is essential to God, or a better way of saying it is God is essential to what we think of as love. There's no way to suck love out of God because God doesn't have parts. He's just God. But on the other hand, God is also us. God is also us? Well, we are created by God. And, yeah, I, would, I won't get into that. I would begin to argue that you can't pull it out of us. We can choose not to 
Yeah, that, that... Somehow we choose to not use it or respond to it. Sure, but, but either way, if you're right, if, if you died, love would still exist. So, so you are not synonymous with love. Love is different than calling. If, if God, quote unquote, died, there would be no such thing as love. Exactly. Because God is all these things. He doesn't have these things. I have love, which is why if I die, love can still exist. Love can go on. If there were no God, then love could not exist because love is not outside of God. It is God. Why? Because God does not have attributes. He is his attributes. He is love. He doesn't have love. Yes. He generates love and wrath in all those things all the time, and we perceive them differently. That's right. What we call love is merely being God in a situa- certain situation. Whatever God would do in this situation, we call that love. But love is not a thing outside of God. It's a, it is God. Just same with wisdom, same with wrath. So again, that's what I've been talking about throughout this whole series when I've said with each attribute, this attribute is essential to him. It's not outside of him that he adds to himself as a part or a component, but he is these things. That's what we mean. So here's just, uh, just to barely scratch the surface, just to help us break through the mystery just a little bit. Again, these will not be perfect. They will not answer all your questions, but they, they will help us just understand a little bit as how can all of God's attributes actually be one thing? The, the most, it's a little blurry, I apologize, but the most famous metaphor that's ever been given or analogy is a prism. This is a th- dig- uh, digital printing, a fake picture of a prism, right? What is a light prism? Light hits the prism and rainbow comes out the other side. And so how is this an analogy for simplicity? Well, think about this way. Light, now by the way, even, even light, let me take a step back. Here's what's awesome about simplicity. God alone is the only thing that is truly simple. Nothing else is simple. God alone is simple. Think of anything other than God and I promise you I can show you that it's made up of parts. Right? Just You can name anything. For example, this little clicker. This is not simple. It's made up of parts. There's plastic. There's metal. And even if there wasn't any metal, let's say it was just purely plastic, it would have length. It would have width. It would have height. Right, so what happens if you take away the length of this? It goes away. It's made up of parts. Anything that's physical has parts because... By definition, something that's physical has to have length, width, and height. By definition, that's already three parts. So anything that's physical has parts. So the only way something can be simple is it has to be spiritual. And then we would say even among spiritual beings, spiritual beings are still made up of parts. You have a spiritual side to you. You have a non-physical side, but it's made up of parts. Because your spiritual being can grow in love, it can decrease in love. It can grow in hatred, it can decrease in hatred. So you have a soul, but your soul is still not simple. God alone, he is the only thing that is truly simple. Everything else is made up of some kind of part. Everything else has division. God alone is the only thing without division. Which is really cool. But anyway, so back to the prism. So light is not simple, but light is probably the closest thing we have to understanding something simple, right? There's not a whole lot of parts to light. There's particles, but scientists say, well, we don't know if they're particles or waves. There is technically, there's, there's length, width, and height to this picture of light, but light doesn't really have length. Width. It's pretty close to something simple. So here's one single beam of light. But when this one single beam of light goes through the prism, 
it appears to us as multiple beams of different light. And this is what God has done. God has essentially said, I am a single ray of light, which by the way, light is one of the Bible's most favorite metaphors to speak of God. God says, I am a simple beam of light, but you humans cannot understand this. So I am going to give you a Bible, I'm going to give you Revelation, which is going to describe this single thing in different ways. So in this analogy, God's being is Scripture takes the liberty of dividing God's undivided being. So yes, Scripture does sort of present God to us in parts to some degree. It, it says that God is holy, and God is omniscient, and God is love, and God is eternal, and et cetera, et cetera. But all Scripture is doing, like the prison, is breaking into parts what is not actually broken into parts. A rainbow is not going through a prism. But the prism just has this amazing ability to make this single ray of light look like a rainbow. In the same way, God is not multiple things. But Scripture has this amazing way of presenting Him like multiple things to help us relate to Him, to help us understand Him. So Scripture is the prism that breaks God up into parts. But God is not actually broken up into parts. Uh, the distinction is in Revelation, not in God's being. As God has revealed Himself, He's given us different parts to understand Him. But that's through Revelation. His actual being is simple. His actual being is not parts uh, but we can't possibly begin to understand this. We can barely understand this. So this was just a tool that God gave us to help us understand this. Another way of, of thinking about it is a couple cool Latin phrases. One of them is not on the screen. This describes the rainbow as ad extra distinction. Over here you could put ad intra. Ad extra and ad intra. Ad intra is a Latin phrase meaning in himself. And ad extra is outside himself. Within God, there is only one attribute, and it's God. Ad intra, there's only one attribute of God. Ad extra, there are lots of attributes. And it's, all this is just a Latin phrase for saying the same thing here. That God is one simple and undivided being, but he, to help us understand, has revealed himself in parts. So ad extra, God has parts, but ad intra, God does not have parts. That's how the Latin philosophers talked about it. God has only one attribute, but the Bible, to help us understand, has described that one attribute in different components in different ways. I want to give this next picture is a little grotesque, but that, that adds to the... I want to help give another... So, so we've talked about the prism. I want to give another analogy. And for this analogy, you have to, I want you to imagine that we all decide, hey, it's, it's too hot. We want some cooler weather. So we take a field trip and we go to Rio Doso and we go on a hike. And while we're walking through the forest, we stumble upon... A, decay, a dead deer carcass, right? We stumble upon this gross, dead, decaying deer carcass. And we look down, we say, ah, oh, poor fellow, this is gross, this is nasty. And as we look up, we see not far ahead from the, from the deer carcass, in the same forest, all of these beautiful forest flowers. This smells disgusting, these smell delicious. This is gross, grotesque to look at. These are lovely to look at. Now, here's what's amazing. There's something, it's not the only thing, but there's something that's contributing to their different states of condition, and it's the sun. If there were no sun, these flowers don't stand a chance. If there were no sun, this carcass would be an entirely different thing. It would not be like... So the sun, the same sun, 
the same heat, the same rays of light are acting upon both of these things, right? So the sun hits the flower and what does it do? It makes it beautiful. It makes it fragrant, right? And so since it's the same sun, when it hits the deer, it should make it what? Beautiful and fragrant, but it doesn't. The sun is not doing this guy any favors. The sun is burning him, decomposing him at a higher rate. It's increasing his smell. If you were to put this thing in a freezer, it would smell much better. The sun is destroying this thing while it's making this thing beautiful. So from the deer's perspective, if, if we were to bring this deer back to life and say, hey, tell me about the sun, he would say, it's awful. It's, it's terrifying. It's hot. It hurts. It burns. And we were to say, okay, then we give the, the flowers a, a, a brain. And ask, Would you tell me about the sun? You know what they say? Oh, he, he's so comforting. And he's lovely and I adore him. So, but the sun did not change in either situation. The difference was in the recipient, not in the sun. So one way to understand the attributes of God is the reason God looks different, feels different, sometimes he feels like eternal, sometimes he feels like wise, sometimes he feels like wrath. The difference is actually in our perspective to him. The way we perceive of God, because we are broken up into parts, we, we, are, by, we are forced because of who we are to break him up into parts. So God's, when a person dies and meets God, they're both meeting and encountering the same thing. But one is in Christ, one is outside of Christ. And so one person outside of Christ receives God, and he, what is he going to say? Wrath, awful, burning, terrible. The same person is going to receive the same thing. But he's in Christ, so he's a different recipient. And what is he going to say? Amazing, wonderful, beautiful, lovely. So again, God's distinctions are actually in us in our, the different ways that we relate to him, he does not change as he relates to us. We all relate to the same thing, but because of our differences and our relativity, it makes God look different. Um, I thought I had another one, but I guess that's it, right? So that, like I said, I know that does not come close to answering all of the different philosophical debates that people have, but do these things give you just kind of some, at least peek into the mystery of how we can say that God's holiness and eternity are actually the same thing. They're not actually different. And, right, the sun is not different here, but it feels different, it looks different. You look at things at different angles, they look different than they actually are. So our relativity, our changeableness, the only way we can perceive of God is by a relative changeable perception. But God does not actually change. Um, so let me, let me summarize and then we have time to talk. These, uh, the basic component of simplicity, this is where it gets really, really deep when we start talking about how he is his attributes and all of his attributes are the same. That, that's where the deep part, there's a, there's a top layer of simplicity that's easy to understand. And, and if you're going to take something away with you, this is what I want you to take away. Uh, and it's just these three things. These are the three key ways to understand simplicity. That God is without any parts. It's the first thing. God's attributes are not parts of him. That all that is in God is God. God is not dependent upon lesser God things to create him. There's nothing in God that isn't fully God himself. Which, I want to say a brief side note. I've tried really hard to not bring up the incarnation or the trinity because that can really confuse an attributes of God class. 
But the divine simplicity was, a, was hugely important for Christians in how they understood the doctrine of the Trinity. Because one of the early heresies of the Trinity was that each of the three persons are one-third God, and when they come together, they create the fullness of God. Uh, and, and Scripture flatly denies that. Scripture attributes that all three persons are equally God. And so what that means is that when you, if you were to pull the Son out of the Trinity, you wouldn't be holding one-third of God. You'd be holding fully God. You pull the Spirit out of the Trinity, you're not holding a third of God. You're holding fully God. God's essence is fully shared among the three persons. Uh, so even the members of the Trinity are not to be thought of as parts within God. They are all fully the same essence. They share the same essence is what we say. So again, the key though is God doesn't have parts. All that is in God is God, and that God's attributes are His essence. His essence does not have attributes. We are essences with attributes. God is not an essence with attributes. God's attributes are His essence. His essence is His attributes. They are identical. Those are the three things. You don't have to even understand them totally, but just if you want to begin to understand the attribute of simplicity, it's these three things. God is without parts. All that is in God is God, and God attributes in essence are identical. And that's all I have for simplicity. Like I said, I, I, I just to, I'll, I'll close with this. You know, in the different books I have on simplicity, there there were times where I was reading the proofs and the explanations, and I would read the whole page, and then I would stop and go, I have no idea what I just read. I don't understand half of this. It's, it, it gets it can get very very complex and complicated. But the reason I say that is because I don't want you to think that this is just something that we just made up because it would be fun to make something up and that. I mean, there is a level of understanding that goes beyond me that some people have. So I don't want you to pretend like every single person is just like, who knows what it means? Just believe it anyway. There are, there are people out there who can, un, who can explain this at a really deep and sophisticated level. That's just not me. <laughs> and so you don't get it today. But uh, it's, not, it's not, no one, I don't think anyone claims to fully understand it. Just like we don't understand any of God's attributes fully. Uh, but again, there are people who don't just chalk it up to faith the way I do. I just want you to be assured of that. There are, there are theologians, past and present, who can give a very, very good biblical, philosophical defense of this. So don't think that it's like the way, how I'm presenting it, but just, for, just to get a taste of it, I think this is a, a good presentation, just to get a taste of it for the first time, that God does not have parts. He is not made up of love and justice and wrath, but He is one simple, undivided unity, the only pure being, uh, the only pure. Everything else is, is either is complex, composite, and it's also sinful by the fall. So God is the only thing that is pure because he has no sin and he is undivided. He is the only simple pure being. Everything else is composite and lacking. So kind of neat. Any thoughts or questions or concerns about simplicity? Or it, it, now this one kind of encompasses the others, so you could even talk about a different one. God is simple. Yeah, that's true. There, there is a book. Uh, uh, the closest thing to a lay-level book, it's not very long. Um, there's a book. Uh, you could borrow it from me or you could get your own copy. It's, it's, now again, I'm, it's still not an easy read. But it's much easier than the vast majority of literature out there. And like I said, it's, it's, it's pretty, actually small. And it's a book called um, All That Is in God by James Dolezal. 
So if, if you ever do want to take a little bit of a deeper dive, he doesn't just talk about simplicity in that book, but it's primarily looking at simplicity. That's a really good introductory to what does it mean to affirm that God is simple, which all of our confessions do. All the confessions, the, the historic ones, affirm that God is simple. Uh, what does that mean? And so, but you're right. If, if, if you could whiz it and master it, you, you could make a lot of money off of it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, not not fully, not perfectly. And I don't know if you want to take time tonight, but as a physicist, I have a big physics. I can tell you why I don't have a master's and a doctorate in physics. And that's really the key. In physics, you want to believe that there are atoms and chemistry both. Atoms are made out of nucleus which is protons and neutron, neutrons and electrons are going around the side. And the, the simulation of those things makes different chemicals, mm -hmm. which makes compounds, which makes up everything we know. But of course, in the early 40s, we figured out how to split the atom. Right. And release enormous amounts of power. And we found out there's more parts than Neutrons, protons, and electrons. <laughs> I, I quit learning math. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And now we're really smart. We can even break some of those up. Wow, yeah. You see, what will happen if we were smart enough is you could continue to break up particles looking for the particle that goes around. They're all spinning around so fast with such energy and you would get to God is simple. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. God's, eventually you get, you, you get to God. With. That eventually ends. He's the, the backboard. That's what he had to work with yeah. when he created. That's right. And it's, it's something we don't understand. It's energy. And, and we, don't, we don't begin to understand it, but we think we do. And we learn it to use it, you know, nuclear reactors and all kinds right. of stuff. We're learning to break those parts down, but they can use it. They don't understand it. Yeah. We don't know what makes gravity. Holds us to No, it's true, yeah. Mm -hmm. We use it, but we stay on Earth instead of flying away because that's the way God made it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Even people forget how much in science we deal with what are called theories. In science, you have theories and laws. And lay people will oftentimes confuse them. Um, a theory is not a law, so it's, we don't actually know. Now, th what makes a theory stick is pragmatism, where if, if, if I have a theory and I plug it into an equation and it works, then, then we allow it to stay as a theory. Uh, so here, here's where it gets really interesting. So for example, Einstein's uh, the, the theory of relativity it's a theory. We don't actually know that Einstein was right. The reason we teach Einstein is right is because if you use Einstein's theory, it works. Like we use the theory of relativity to get satellites into space and it works. But here's the amazing thing. Uh, there are different kinds of theory, theory, uh, physics that are different from Einstein that also work. There's Newtonian physics, which has differences to Einsteinian physics, and, and it works. And so here's where it gets really interesting. One of my favorite Christian scientists is a guy named Jason Lyle. 
And he's a young earth creationist, so he believes that the, the, the universe is only 10,000 years old. And the, one of the main scientific evidences against the young earth creation, because that's a minority position among scientists, uh, the, the overwhelming physical evidence is that the universe is very old, billions of years old. And one of, one of the evidences we have for the age of the universe is what we call distant starlight. We quote unquote know the speed of light, and so we're able to measure how far stars are away through measuring their light somehow. And we know that they're, you know, a million light years away, which means it took that light a million years to get here. So we know that the universe has to be at least a million years old because we, we can actually count, we can actually measure how long light took to get here. But here's what's amazing. Um, Einstein's theory, we don't actually know how fast light travels. You, we can't measure it. We assume it. That's part of Einstein's theory, and it works. And so we assume it's true because it works with our experiments. But we can't actually measure the speed of light. And uh, there's another model that Jason Lyle uses, and this is a model that states this. This will blow your mind. That light moves in two relative directions, meaning light can either move towards you or away from you. And this theory posits that when light moves away from you, it moves at a speed. But when light moves to you, it's instantaneous. It has no speed. It's, it's instantaneous. And this model works. Like, you can, you can use this understanding of the speed of light, and you can get a satellite to Mars. So, I, I can't remember where I went off on this, but the whole point is that, the point is this, is there is so much about the physical universe that we pretend to know, but we don't actually know. We have assumptions that seem to be working, <laughs> but that's not knowledge. We don't really know what gravity is, but we have measurements and assumptions that, that make sense of everything else, and so we go with it. But we, we really don't know these things. And at any point in time, we could get new evidence that completely throws everything out. Like, there's just so much that we don't know. And again, I can't remember where I was going with that, but I guess what I will say is that uh, I just always remind myself, whenever I get into things like the Trinity or simplicity, and I'm just like, oh man, I can't understand this. I don't even understand the material world. I don't even understand light. So why... Why do I put so much pressure on myself to understand that which is infinitely more different, far from me, than light is, and that's God, right? So light is going to be easier to understand than God is, and I don't even understand light, <laughs> right? You know, is light a wave or a particle? We don't know. How fast does it travel? We don't know. There's so much about it, we don't know. So, I'd, so take the pressure off. You don't need to know everything there is to know about God. 